Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hi, this is Natalie, your host for the Future Work Playbook. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by two esteemed colleagues, Katie Gardner and Aaron Rubin. They've both been with Gunderson for about 12 years and are both partners in our strategic transactions and licensing group. They routinely advise venture-backed tech companies during all stages of their life cycles, These include software, cybersecurity, e-commerce, and health tech companies, and also the VC firms and other investors that back these companies. Most importantly for today's discussion, they're both very focused on all aspects of artificial intelligence and generative AI. Welcome, Katie and Aaron. We're thrilled to have you here today. Thank you, Natalie. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Natalie. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for being here. Let's start our discussion with your recent Generative AI webinar series. It's been incredibly popular, and I'd love for you to share the key insights or takeaways. Let's start with Aaron and then go to Katie. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a a great entree into this discussion. One thing we've noticed is the participation for, for this webinar series has been off the charts. It's We've had hundreds and hundreds of listeners and participants in these series, and I think it really shows not only how interested folks are about generative AI, but also how uncertain they are about it, how many questions they have about it, and how much they really want to get a handle around how to best implement this very transformative technology in their businesses. So we've been covering a number of different topics throughout the webinar series from just general intros to use of, of open source uh, and using AI technology in, in um, open source coding and patents and, and how AI is changing that world as well. And there have been a range of questions from clients coming from these webinars, you know, things from, you know, as general as like, what happens when I input data into a chat GPT query? Um, you know, we get a, a bunch of those questions and, you know, how can I implement a thoughtful internal AI policy for my employees? I realize there are a lot of risks here and I want to make sure that we're using this uh, transformative technology in a thoughtful manner um, exactly. to some really specific questions that, Clients have come to us, uh, you know, about their businesses uh, in particular that, you know, I think they hadn't necessarily thought of until, um, you know, we went through some of the really cool things that this technology can do and and some of the points that companies should be thinking about as they use this technology. So I think it's, you know, been a great conversation starter and, you know, we're hoping to continue that conversation as this technology develops. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly has been a very popular series. Katie? Yeah, as Aaron mentioned, the response has really been overwhelming and there continues to be a a high demand for content and things are changing rapidly, really every day. So we, you know, we've done these 
for, I think, very successful client webinars. I think the last one had 600, 600 attendees. Um, but we're continuing to create kind of new materials and really stay ahead of what our clients need. And our, our, you know, going forward, our team is also doing a number of smaller workshops for funds and company clients. I, I did one this week, um, a fireside chat that we co-sponsored with one of our venture fund clients that was with health tech founders specific on health tech and AI. And I think next week I'm doing an AI training for a company client at their legal team offsite. I think every member partner on our team is being asked by, by clients to come in and do these more kind of tailored discussions or, or trainings. Oh, that's fantastic. There's, there's such a need for education. And as you both mentioned, there's just so many opportunities right now and so many uncertainties. So I'm thrilled to hear. And the last number I saw, by the way, uh, Katie and Aaron, I, I think I think we had upwards of 1,500 participants in the various webinar series. So it's it's a great opportunity to learn and wonderful to hear about the smaller industry-focused workshops as well. So listen, because of how rapidly everything has been happening. And to your point, it's just constantly updating, staying ahead, educating as much as we can. I, I know that that you've both been fielding a tsunami of inquiries from clients on the shifting landscape of generative AI. And I was hoping you could share with our listeners, what are some key concerns that you're hearing from clients um, and how are you advising them and guiding them to prepare for these challenges? Uh, Why don't we start with Katie this time? Yeah. So Natalie, as your listeners probably know, Gunderson really is very focused in on the venture backed ecosystem. And so that, that puts us in a really unique position of being on the ground with companies and being able to take an active role in finding solutions. Our clients are developing and investing in the most cutting edge products and technology. And so we are seeing and anticipating these novel legal challenges that are resulting as they're playing out. And I think just given the sheer volume of our exposure to these issues, we as a team, are able to make significant investments in building up our resources to counsel clients. So whether that's, you know, our knowledge bank or templates and forms for policies or checklists for diligence or making connections to industry resources and really thinking ahead about what they need. And and that's how we've been managing the surge of of inquiries. I think you Mm -hmm. also asked about the, the key concerns that clients are are bringing. I, I think the most common question, at least that I'm receiving, probably because it's it's universal across companies, is the risks of using AI for code development. Companies or you know, in-house legal counsel or business folks are getting a lot of pressure from their engineering team to to use these tools. And you know, one of the biggest risks for a venture back company is doing something that will create friction or prevent their ability to engage in an exit. And, you know, the the diligence exercise by acquirers and looking at kind of code and, you know, requiring open source remediation is 
still has been and is still kind of one of the the most time consuming and and um, most rigorous exercise of diligence. And at this point, you know, there's yeah. just a lot of unknowns there. So again, since we're on the kind of ground floor of this, we are proactively working with the code scan company to get an understanding of what's going on and, and developing, mm-hmm. you know, tools to help clients prepare for these potential issues. Mm. Are there any in particular that you've found uh, to be effective in that regard? Um, to be effective in the the code issue? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's a spectrum of risk, right? There's low risk and and high risk. Certainly, mm-hmm. high higher risk is going to be using using it in your kind of proprietary products. Lower risk is going to be using it to facilitate other kind of backend, you know, tools or or kind of organizational or operational matters. I think what companies have been doing is trying to do some preliminary scans of uh-huh. their code to see what, if anything, gets flagged. But it, it's still really early. We haven't, yeah. I haven't, I don't know if Aaron has, you know, had an acquisition yet where this has come up and we've seen kind of how, you know, traditional big tech acquirer reacts to it and, you know, what how they quantify the risk and what they require for remediation. So it's a lot of gray area and things to be seen. Wow. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting time for this because we're seeing this all happen in, in real time. Like right. the, the code scanning companies, as, as Katie was was mentioning, like they don't have you know enough information and knowledge. They're trying to gather it. They're encouraging companies to come to them to do code scans sometimes at a deep discount, companies that have used a lot of um, AI technology in building their code base to get a better understanding of how, you know, how code bases have been built, how code has been implemented, so that to the M&A question, we develop more of a market understanding of responsible uses and acquirers should expect from target companies that are going through the M&A process. Like we're living through this right now. Um, And it's, it's like, let's have this conversation again in a year. It'll be interesting to see if, if there's been sort of a a market standard established, it'll be be sort of a a wild ride until then. Yeah, no, the, the solutions are getting trained themselves. And so of course they need, (laughs) they want to have the test cases so that they can prove up. uh, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. And so having policies in place is one thing, but it probably not enough. And I, I think these workshops are, are a great starting point. Are, are we starting to see some of our clients also want to put policies out there, but, but also uh, train their workforces as to what are the risk cases because the truth is, it seems like most employees at this point are using generative AI tools. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Natalie. The policies are great. And I think Katie and I have both had many, many clients come to us. But there's ironically a human element to this as well, where you know there need to, to, to be you know hands-on conversations and, and training sessions to make sure that you know, whether it's developers using code, whether it's business development people trying to gain market knowledge by inputting some risky mm-hmm. queries or using mm-hmm. confidential information in their queries, 
there are a lot of potential red flags that companies will come across in terms of how their employees are using uh, generative AI technology. Mm. And you know, going through some of those examples, having those training sessions, I think is really helpful, especially at this formative stage. So, you know, even talking about, you know, what's a high risk use versus a low risk use and having a sort of a pragmatic discussion about that, like, hey, this really top secret plan that we're rolling out at our company that no one can know about outside the company. Like, maybe it's not a great idea to put that into your just kind of uh, end user B2C facing chat GPT instance that is going to take that data and, and use it in its model to improve and may spit it out when someone for your you know competitor company inputs a similar search. On the other hand, maybe you're planning an internal birthday party for your, your coworkers and you want some ideas of how to plan that. That might be a low risk use. That's not a real uh, barrier when you're uh, when you're using just the, the kind of person on the street instance of chat GPT. But, you know, are there certain platforms that we feel more comfortable performing certain queries on? Maybe because you know, we have a, an enterprise relationship. We're using an enterprise instance of uh, a large language model to, to generate responses to queries that doesn't use the information that we input in its model. And, you know, we are we're seeing a ton of, of those companies roll out and tout as a feature their siloing and segregation of data to give companies that are using that technology a little more comfort mm-hmm. that the data is going to be used in, in a manner that is not going to blow the top open on, on all the secret plans. So having those conversations, I think, is really important. And it also sort of frames what I think is a running theme in the AI world, that a lot of the um, fear and uncertainty around it is just you know fear and uncertainty that people have had about a lot of concepts for tens, if not hundreds of years uh, you know, in business. Um, it's just being framed and manifested in a new way. Like, how do we keep our top secret information secret? How do we make sure that we own what we create um, for our business? And, and framing it in sort of a, a you know, an, an AI-focused world, I, I think, helps make these topics seem a little more tangible when we're venturing into the unknown at this point. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. And I, I think we're the different we've always had to adapt. We just have to start learning to adapt much faster because of the exponential um, rate of change. But that is one concern in all of this is, and I, and I think that's why we're going to have to use tools for human augmentation so that we can even stay ahead of the best ways to educate and inform uh, workforces as to the the low, the good uses and the higher risk uses and putting some good guardrails around those uses. And, and so that kind of brings us to the question of uh, guardrails and the question of regulating AI. And it's certainly a divisive one. What's your take to regulate or not regulate? And I'll let either one of you take this one first. Yeah, I'm happy to take this one first. And I know Aaron and I have different views on yeah, this. Yeah, this is a good conversation topic. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I'm not optimistic that at least traditional regulation is going to be the solution here. You know, regulations, they work when they're 
specific and very clearly defined, but development in AI is happening too quickly, which means any meaningful regulations are either going to be, you know, too restrictive or too exacting to allow for innovation and progress and will be outdated by the time they go into effect. And I think just looking at history, we don't really have great precedent for moving quickly. I mean, if you think about how (laughs) the internet is regulated today, like looking at kind of social media companies, federal oversight is largely based on a law that was passed almost 30 years ago. You know, the Communications Decency Act is how social media companies were really able to grow and become these behemoths that they are. But um, now there's, you know, the concern about the power and influence that they have and, you know, the kind of negative impact on youth and addiction and self-esteem. And there's all these, you know, questions about it. But that's a 30-year-old regulation. So I think there are other ways, you know, other than kind of traditional regulation, you know, self-regulating organizations where it's really led more by industry participants who are Mm -hmm. establishing the standards and practices and then holding each other accountable Mm -hmm. is a much better way to approach what we need here than looking to Congress to kind of learn and then, you know, follow and then come up with the rules. But regardless, whatever, whatever is developed, you know, needs to be really strategic and forward thinking and we do see little hints of, you know, of the kind of international cooperation and cooperation between the tech companies and the government and, and stuff that, that makes me, you know, optimistic we're, we're moving in the right direction. But yeah, I don't think like the, the EU is, is on the verge of enacting their kind of massive AI. Yeah. And I think that is not the right answer necessarily. I think it's... Um, you know, it'll solve some threats, but then it will also create this regulatory chokehold on the technology industry and have other harmful, unintended consequences. Well, I before we hear the the counterpoint, I'll just say that I'm on your side of this one. I think that there are laws on the books that it doesn't matter if if the tool is AI powered or not. The laws uh, will still exist and the thought of regulation keeping up with technology. Uh, we haven't seen it historically. I don't think we'll see it now, but the the partnership, the, those who are coming out, the good actors coming out with the principles. And I also remain hopeful that market forces prevail so that the, the good actors are the ones who get ahead. But now let's hear the counterpoint from Aaron. <laughs> I don't know that I call it a, a counterpoint because I do agree with with a lot of what you both said. Um, you know, for instance, like I I do think the EU AI Act is pretty impractical and does certainly does not come at, at the the issue in the in the most realistic fashion. I have no idea how that law will be will be implemented if if it's enacted. And the penalty is huge. Right. But, you know, that's going to be a lot of challenges for us attorneys if, if it is enacted, figuring out how to navigate that, that landscape. But I, I hope that that's not our future, because I do think regulation in this space can be, you know, a force for, for good. And I do think there's a degree of inevitability around 
the implementation of regulation, because this is such an area of focus for everybody, everybody, you know, from, you know, people who have nothing to do with technology to people who live their lives in technology are concerned about AI. Uh, and that's generally when we see Congress actually do something when there's, yeah. you know, a, a, a huge public push for, you know, some type of action around it. So what I want to make sure of is, uh, or what I would love to happen is for, Regulation, whatever it may be, um, as, as uh, inevitable as I think it may be, that it still allows folks to innovate and take advantage of all the upside of this technology. Like we have to be intelligent and practical about how we regulate and make sure that any regulation keeps the innovation economy open and accessible to everybody. So, and look, I mean, I think there's some unanimity around that. You have Sam Altman. And, and others, Elon Musk, who both those two do not agree necessarily on what regulation should be like in the AI space. I don't see many instances where the industry leaders in an in a kind of un, unfettered arms race are asking to be regulated. Well, I think it's you know important that there are some guardrails here. You know what they're you know, what folks are asking for concerns me though. If the Large companies of the world or of this country have their way and and some proposals that they're asking for are some really high burden licensor requirements mm -hmm. um, in order to implement this technology. As someone who represents emerging growth companies on a day-to-day -day basis, people just forming companies, raising a seed round, no matter how great the technology is, uh, required to meet some incredibly high demanding, impossible to reach standard for a licensor requirement to deploy this technology. I don't want this world to become a monopoly or a duopoly. Like the, yeah. the innovation that people are creating in this space is, is too amazing for us to cut out everyone, but, you know, just a couple companies. So, you know, I, I think we have, we can't stifle innovation and entry into the market and we have to be pragmatic, but still on the other hand, there are some risks that we have to to potentially regulate against that I'm not totally convinced can be accomplished through self-regulation. Mm -hmm. The points that you're saying to heart, like we we don't want to rely necessarily on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was like enacted in the 1980s or something, to try and use that as as our only regulatory weapon, in, uh, you know, in the AI space. That that would be terrible. We need to create something that a framework that is is more practical for 2023 and and well beyond and still allow folks to innovate and you know i don't know like yesterday i think chuck schumer introduced this at a very high level is the what he calls the safe ai framework and it's got some potential bipartisan support and it's certainly a, at least at a very high level cuz there are a lot of details that need to be fleshed out at this point probably more pragmatic than what the EU has put forth and might be a good starting point. So I say those with like a kernel of optimism, like maybe there's a path forward for, for regulation. We'll see. I think what the three of us who, let me know if I'm, I'm being too presumptuous here, but what the three of us want is for our clients to be able to continue to innovate and create amazing technology without being shut down. And to do that in a in a world where people feel really confident and safe using this technology as well. So that's my 
random dream. I hope you know, something. <laughs> I think reality, we're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, Aaron, I think we're all same page there for certain. Uh, we have incredible clients who are building better futures and that takes innovation and not being uh, handcuffed by regulations that don't take into account the need to sometimes try things that might have some risk, but to try something with zero risk can absolutely be cost prohibitive. So you mentioned Elon Musk, and I want to, I want to, I want to turn to that sort of this, a lot of what we've heard uh, recently in Congress, and certainly we've heard much in the media. So influential voices like Elon Musk and and Jeffrey Hinton, formerly of Google, and the Center for AI Safety have all warned, and so many others have uh, have warned of potentially catastrophic consequences if AI development isn't judiciously handled. Guys, what's your stance on the so-called AI apocalypse? (laughs) There are naturally, obviously, serious risks associated with AI, but I think this focus or discussion on, you know, highlighting extinction and and apocalypse really distracts us from all of the other more pressing and likely risks. I mean, long before all humans will be extinct from AI, there's going to be a lot of other, you know, more likely harmful scenarios that are, should be getting a lot more public attention than this risk of, of human in, extinction. Like we need to be focusing on, on all of the other risks and not letting this creep too much into the, the dialogue because it's really not, I mean, it's, there's a little bit of shock value there, mm-hmm. but I think it, um, yeah, it really takes us away from what's important right now. Great point. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like on, on one hand, like anytime... And I'm probably referring more to Jeffrey Hinton than I am to Elon Musk here. But like anytime, like the smartest and and most accomplished people in a field issue a a warning about the technology to which they've dedicated their lives, you have to take it seriously to some degree. But I think there's, as Katie said, you know, at this point, a lot of shock value tied to that and the way the media has sort of taken the fact that folks have said, yes, there's a possibility of a very devastating risk here and sort of run with that for attention and clicks, perhaps. Mm-hmm. When I, I agree, I think that the the worst case scenario is bad, but I don't think it's really incredibly likely at this point. It's, it's you know, from just listening to a lot of experts in the field, it seems like the more likely scenario is, you know, one of extreme disruption where, you know, critical systems or infrastructure become unusable or the platforms misunderstand our commands or queries or the platforms are filled with, you know, as we know, even now, like riddled with um, biases or inaccuracies. And, and I think those are the problems, you know, kind of like the overcoming like that HAL 9000 type problem is is really what AI programmers and developers and, and society should probably be focused on more than is this going to create our extinction at this point? I, I think that's probably overblown. Yeah. And I guess I would really hope that rather than 
focusing, and I think you're you're both absolutely right. There's shock value there to thinking about how the end may be near, but think of all the incredible opportunities, uh, what we can do with these incredible advancements. We're at a time right now where we have a major need for upskilling. Uh, the the shortage of workers with the appropriate skills is undeniable, and it's going to as we see uh, as we see generative AI take over many of the roles that individuals went to college for. In some cases, I think we we must look to see how generative AI can be a tool that we can use to solve some of these problems, you know, and and maybe shape the direction and integration of transformative technologies into our society. And I, there was a report, it was just a, a couple months ago by the World Economic Forum. And, and they reported that six in 10 workers will require training before 2027. So right around the corner, but less than half of the workers have access to adequate training. So we look to the proliferation of these types of tools that are that are creating um, such wonderful solutions and opportunities out there. And maybe we can uh, really just focus on this notion of, of using AI for good. Natalie, that just made me yeah. um, think of something I heard heard the other day. Someone referred to AI as somewhere in between um, the development or the invention of the internet and fire, which I thought yes. was really in- interesting. Yes, because it just it really does change everything. And what you're talking about of how it's going to you know change the workforce and and how we think about kind of access to education around this. And I think you know I too young kids who are in elementary school and and thinking about like how the curriculum is going to change like it really needs to Mm -hmm. adjust one both because you know there's it's so easy for kids to just produce content now you know when they have some sort of project and how do you change that but also how do you train how do you change the curriculum to teach them the skills that are going to be you know, critical to using this technology. I mean, I'm probably dating myself a lot, but I just think of back to like when, you know, I was in elementary school and we had typing class, you know, like that was, (laughs) this is just the next much more advanced (laughs) version of that. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of change that happens. And I think the, not scary, necessarily scary, but a little scary is just how fast everything is changing with AI. And because it's no longer... It's, we're no longer limited by what humans can do. Mm-hmm. And so the figuring out how we stay on top of this is kind of mind boggling. We, we all must be lifelong learners and we must yeah. learn to learn faster <laughs> on top of it all. To- totally agreed. Katie, I didn't, are, you, are you saying that Mavis Beacon is a casualty of the generative AI revolution? Sorry, what was that, Aaron? <laughs> Did you use Mavis Beacon teaches typing in in, uh, in, in class? That's what I remember using. She, oh, she is one of the first to lose her job, I guess, at uh, 
in, in oh, the generative AI revolution. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, if you don't mind without divulging any attorney-client privilege, of course, but what's been an interesting AI-related case that you've either been involved with or you've heard about thus far? And how do you think it might end up impacting innovation? Well, I think mine's not a, a specific application. It's more of the, the LLM layer. Like I'm really interested to see what happens with all the rapid development in the open source sector. Mm-hmm. We've been seeing a lot of, and I just did a big investor side financing and one of the big kind of new open source LLMs. And so you have all these kind of new companies that are coming on to the scene in some ways, a response to the lack of transparency that many of the big tech companies have taken and keeping their models closed. And then at the same time, we've also seen some of the big tech companies responding and releasing models under open source licenses. And I think that most recently, and I don't think it's come out yet, but even OpenAI, which has been, you know, traditionally very close, announced that they're going to release a new open source LLM that is probably a response to all of the, you know, growing competition in the space. But with these open source AI models, you know, you get access to the code and people can actually understand what's going on and people can, you know, identify where there are potential vulnerabilities and warn people. And you also have the option for, you know, private models and things that really solve a lot of or have the potential to solve a lot of the the risks that we uh, talk about when we're talking about AI models because, you know, these, these proprietary models are these closed source, you see, you put in mm-hmm. a, in a input and you get an output, but you don't know how it got there. You don't know where mm-hmm. it came from. You don't know what the data is. You don't know, you know, how it's right or wrong. And, and um, having transparency is what many people think is going to be the most kind of important aspect of, of kind of the future of AI platforms. So it'll be interesting to see, how this all plays out between like big tech and newer companies. Absolutely. And for our, for our listeners, LLM is large language model. And I think that's everything uh, you said, Katie, is, is spot on. I think there will be, as we incorporate generative AI into more of our everyday operations, just, just a growing call for transparency um, explainability and accountability as well. Aaron, over to you. Yeah, so I, I completely agree on on the transparency angle, and and just to look at this from a, a different facet, I am incredibly impressed by how our clients have very rapidly taken this you know newly usable technology and have implemented it in so many different worlds. You know, I, I wish, as as you said, probably some some attorney client privilege prevents us from getting into details. But you know, at a high level, to see how clients in just a matter of months have implemented this technology into everything from children's education. I've you know a client working on something amazing in, in terms of interactive child learning to healthcare and diagnostic type tools um, yeah. that are just truly 
revolutionary and and I'll say just somewhat more humorously but kind of I'm kind of excited about it is you know a couple clients I think there are a lot of businesses focused around this about creating the fabled AI powered uh, virtual assistant that I feel like we've all been promised this for at least a decade now with Siri (laughs) and all of it they're always so disappointing in terms of like what they can actually do. I've seen, I demoed a, a, a client's platform the other day and I was really blown away with how little information I had to give this virtual assistant to actually do what I wanted it to do, to you know, hypothetically book me a plane ticket exactly how I would, would want it to be done. Really? Um, I could not imagine that being done by you know, any other technology at this point. And I mean, I think we're on the precipice of something really exciting and useful in, in that manner. And, and hopefully it, you know, in the best case scenario, like adds a lot of time and freedom to our lives. Um, that's what I'm really excited about. We'll see if it, you know, if it, if it ends up bearing out, but it's um, really potentially exciting. Yeah. It does seem like we're at that precipice and the thought of creating additional opportunities for us humans so that we can really focus on high-level strategic work that AI can't replicate. Imagine, uh, yeah, imagine what we could do with with that extra time to focus there and really uh, not doing some of the the routine repetitive work that we've traditionally had to do because somebody um, has to do it. So Fantastic. I think, unfortunately, we're uh, coming to the end of this episode, Future Work Playbook. And I have to ask the both of you if you would be willing to let our listeners get to know you a little better by engaging in a quick fire challenge. Are you up for it? Sure. Oh, yeah. We're up for it. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Which scenario feels more plausible, the apocalyptic world of the Terminator or the automated utopia of the Jetsons? I have to be optimistic here and say the Jetsons. Love it. How about you, Aaron? Uh, More the Jetsons. I'll take the middle ground. Do you remember that Joaquin Phoenix movie, Her? That like yes, yes. Showed, like, like like I think it's like really cool potential in this world, but also a reminder that this technology is here to make you know human connections and re- and relationships even stronger, and the fact that they're sort of irreplaceable. So sort of harmonious in that way. I I love that. Yeah, yeah. No, every listeners focus on what makes us human and keep exercising those muscles, creativity and connection, collaboration. I think that's what we're going to need. Um, Okay. But we're in the middle of a quick fire challenge. (laughs) What is an AI focused book or even movie or article um, that has captured your interest recently? If you have any. I recently read The Big Nine, which actually is not, it's not a new book. It's from 2019, which makes it even more interesting (laughs) to read. Um, But it's by Amy Webb. She's a futurist. She also recently wrote um, another book called The Genesis Machine, which is more focused on like AI and the biotech field. 
anyways, it's a really interesting read about kind of the nine big tech titans again it's from 2019 so it, it doesn't include you know open ai um yeah but um and talks about kind of the ways in which our data is mined in in ways that we are not aware of and makes a bunch of scary predictions <laughs> but it, it's a it's a really interesting read all right excellent excellent aaron I just started reading, so I haven't finished yet, uh, a book called the, the AI Revolution in Medicine that is talking about exactly that, that, you know, it's talking about the potential and amazing applications that uh, generative AI technology can have in, in the world of medicine from, you know, training to diagnostics and, and everything in between. It also is, is, I think, so far pretty even-handed because it talks about some of the shortcomings as well, that it, it can still make a lot of errors and, and um, you know, things that would be apparent to med students, not necessarily apparent to the platform. Um, so mm-hmm. it's still a long way to go, but the potential is pretty tantalizing. That sounds good. Sounds good. I'm going to throw one in myself. Uh, it's from last year called The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Better, More Inclusive Future by Orly. Global and the the title I think kind of speaks for itself. With that, Katie and Aaron, you guys are great and doing such important work. Thank you both, and thank you to our listeners. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.